Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Some of the most advanced learning technologies are used in training healthcare professionals. However, healthcare professionals working in rural areas of low and middle income countries often don't have access to such resources. So what does workplace learning look like for healthcare workers in some of the world's most underserved communities? And how can their learning experience be improved so that they can provide the best healthcare possible? To discuss this, I'm joined by Professor Niall Winters, who is Professor of Education and Technology at the University of Oxford. His research examines the design, development, and evaluation of technology-enhanced learning programs for healthcare workers in low-resource settings in the Global South, particularly in Kenya. He is co-director of the Learning and New Technologies Research Group at Oxford University's Department of Education and formerly Deputy Director of Research and Director of the Masters of Education, Learning and Technology. Nal was involved in establishing the Global Centre on Healthcare and Urbanization at Kellogg College at Oxford University, and he has consulted for UNESCO, Department of International Development, and the NHS, among many others. On a personal note, Nal was also one of my doctoral supervisors who taught and guided me through my PhD at Oxford. So this is a particularly special episode for me, and thank you so much, Nal, for joining me on my podcast. And thanks, Kinga, and thanks for the, the kind words and introduction. And it was a, a pleasure to co-supervise with, with Gabriel. That's nice to see how the uh, podcast has developed and evolved. Oh, thank you so much. Well, but mainly academics to engage with the public. So that's nice to see. So thank you. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm really glad you're doing this episode. And um, to start off, can we just first get a bit of an overview about your research and the care training? What does that look like mm-hmm. on the ground? Yeah, sure, no problem. So one of my areas of research interest is in using technology to help support training of healthcare workers, mm-hmm. and primarily in low and middle income countries. So we do a lot of work in Kenya and Uganda, um, for example. And the reason for the work is WHO and others have estimated that about half the world's population don't have access to adequate healthcare because there just isn't enough healthcare workers in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we work with doctors, nurses, and also um, community health workers um, who are basically, volu- well, in, in Kenya anyway, volunteers, but other countries paid. Mm-hmm. So the base of the community, they do a lot of community-based um, health work. And so when you're really trying to work with the most marginalized or the most vulnerable in society, they're the people who we do primarily a lot of work with. And we're interested in, in support of their training in trying to get more health workers trained. How can we use technology, in particular mobile technologies, to help achieve that, that goal? So that's primarily what I spend a lot of my research time focusing on. And definitely it's a very challenging context, and especially if they're volunteers as well, so, so many mm-hmm. of, the, of the healthcare workers. So what does the technology enable in this context? It's a good question. So maybe if I take a, a couple of examples and things we, we've worked on. So if you think about a community health worker working in a, in a, with a rural community, a kind of traditional approach to training them would involve perhaps a donor-funded training program that perhaps may pay for them to come to a big city, stay in a hotel, do some weekend training, and then go back to their community with what they've, what they've learned. And... Mm-hmm. Um, which is good up to a point. However, if you'd like to do continuous training or continuous supervision, you know, a bit like people these days with, with, with COVID learning online, mm-hmm. and how can you use mobile technologies to help support that ongoing training and supervision? And so we're always sort of taking a blended approach where we work with them in designing the training intervention face-to-face and then we've designed it so it um, enables them to essentially do their job in a 
hopefully more productive way using the technology. So two examples may be, one was around work we did a few years ago in Kenya with AMREF Health Africa. So we always work in, in partnership with local organizations to help train community health workers to assess stages of childhood development. Mm-hmm. So particularly in, in under fives. And what the mobile technology enabled there was essentially became a job aid or a work aid. So there's an algorithm you can follow to do this assessment. And so they, they follow that and they assess the, the child they're, they're seeing. And what's interesting there is we looked at their experience on the ground, what they've, what they've been doing previously, um, and what, for example, the algorithm was telling them, for, for example, about the stage, which stage the child had, had reached and should it be referred for more specialist care. And like a lot of technologies, that would be the end. It would say, the algorithm says you need to, the child needs to be referred. But obviously that negates their personal experience. It negates their expertise. It negates the network and the super supervisors they'd work with. And so on the, the learning side of things, it was getting them to engage with their supervisor, who's usually a nurse, mm-hmm. reflecting on the decisions they would make. So why did the algorithm make the decision it made? Do they agree with it? Why do they agree with it? If so, why not? And then come to a decision about referral um, with their with their supervisor, who is a usually in many cases a trained nurse. Okay, and they're in contact with their they're in personal contact with their supervisor, or is it the kind yes. of context where they're remote? So they're in contact. Usually, they meet in monthly, mm. but then through essentially at the time WhatsApp groups that there was um, supportive supervision done through the through the phone and through the through the app. So they were in kind of constant, constant communication. And another, that's another benefit of using the technology is that the supervisor gets the details of the assessment so they know the basis on which the community health worker is making their decision. Mm-hmm. So the community health worker doesn't have to describe all that verbally. Right. Um, and particularly if they're, they're a novice or they're, they're less experienced, that's difficult for them to do. So it's thinking about the ways in which you can use that type of data in a supportive manner to, I guess, improve, if you like, an almost tutorial relationship <laughs> between a supervisor and a community health worker, and then make, in this case, referral decisions based on that. So we're always looking at ways in which the technology can integrate into practice to improve mm. decision-making. We're not looking for, for example, using you know, AI techniques to make decisions for people. And then essentially community health workers become data collectors. That's not what we're interested in. We're interested in ways in which the technology helps them and in a way scaffolds, I guess, um, their work practices. And in so many ways, it's even more important to have that technology than healthcare workers that maybe we're thinking about in our context, where they're part of a big hospital, often Mm -hmm. linked to a university with a lot of professionals physically around them and mm-hmm. and a lot of resources to be able to help their learning as they're practicing. But in this case, individuals are in the field far away from exactly. resources or mentors or or a hospital. Is that exactly mm-hmm. um, particularly in the more in the more rural communities. They may of course engage in peer learning with their with their community health worker colleagues, but that only works up to a point. You need to have you need to have expertise. And we've done work on extending that so not just the relationship between community health workers and nurses or supervisors but then into more specialist areas of of, of care so right. for example james o'donovan's current phd extends some of that work around ear care and bringing in consultants for example into that into that decision making process for the more most serious cases and then thinking about what that looks like over time is essentially you're looking at building the capability of the community health workers to assess, manage more complex cases than they would otherwise. And because of the exposure they're getting to this level of expertise and this ongoing supervision. Mm. And that's what we're, that's what we're interested in as well. And really without the technology, would that even be possible having that level of supervision? And I think really quite difficult, you know, because a lot of it is 
I've collected this data, I want to share it with you. You know, so technically, I guess they could, you know, write it down or get back to base and perhaps email it or write a letter maybe if we go way back. But the ability to have those conversations around cases Mm -hmm. in, I guess, an almost real time situation where they're getting responses, you know, that day or the day after, and they're then taking part in sort of, I guess you call them online or mobile mediated discussion groups around the experience that they've had, but also other community health workers have had. So they may be saying, seeing cases and data from cases that they wouldn't otherwise see. Right, okay. And because we've done some work mixing um, rural and urban. And mm-hmm. so what happens in an, in an urban informal settlement, you know, a slum and in, informal settlement, um, is often different to what happens in a, in a rural area. And mm-hmm. so if they can get, share that and discuss it, they get more insight. And hopefully that leads to an improvement in their practice. Right, so the technology really enables that learning community right. that is important to so many professionals and also the on-the-job training that is right. much more difficult without technology in such a... Correct, and, and hard to do in, in, I guess, that more longitudinal way because mm-hmm. you're relying on face-to-face, you're relying on bringing people together. And often when, when they are volunteers, or even in other countries where they may be part-time, they have other jobs that may be doing subsistence farming, for example. So if they have to travel to the local big city, mm-hmm. it takes them away from their day-to-day income generating activity so that has a, has a hit as well particularly for the the most vulnerable who usually is where our focus is definitely an added challenge so what in terms of you know this is these are great things that the technology is enabling to do but what are some of the challenges with what you are seeing mm-hmm. on the ground mm-hmm. so i think the technology enables things but it only enables things if you think about technology in a particular way Mm-hmm. We often think about technology as socially constructed, if you like. So we have to understand the context in which the technology is used. We have to understand the ways in which it can be embedded in existing structures and networks, which are more social science, if you like, rather than technical decisions. But I think if, if we step back and we look at the field more broadly, if you think about digital health or mobile health, more broadly, particularly in low and middle income countries. I think it is, one of the challenges for the field is, I think it remains relatively technocentric. Okay. So people tend to focus on a technology or what a technology can do or what a technology is currently available. Like low end phones, for example, are still very popular in, in LMICs. And then they build their solution in inverted commas based on that without understanding enough about the social historical context. So what is that social historical context a little bit, just to give a bit of understanding on what you're referring Mm to? Mm -hmm. So if we think about a community health worker, many of them are women who are respected in their communities. They have a number of children they're looking after. They maybe have one or two other jobs. They may not be as literate, if I could use that term, with the technology, mm-hmm. as people think they are. And so you need to think about their lived experience and what life is like for them on a daily basis. Absolutely. And if you're going to say, for example, well, we'll do training where, I don't know, we can put a 10, 20 laptops in the local school, and then out of hours during school, we'll bring the community health workers in and we'll train them and we'll have loads of this content, or we'll give them PDFs on mobile phones because they have access to it. You're not really thinking about the ways in which A, that's useful for them, B, how that content that can be disseminated quite nicely, particularly on mobile devices, Mm -hmm. and actually relate what's the relationship between having access to that content and a subsequent change in their practice. Mm -hmm. You know, some people think, I guess, when you take a very technocentric view, that there's the assumption that access to information equals change in practice. If only they knew or only they had new X, Y, or Z, things would change. And obviously we all know that's a lot more complex than that. Exactly. But I think within the fields, there's still some of that thinking. I've probably, you know, made it too extreme in the example I've given, but um, there's still that thinking goes on and it doesn't relate to actually what does it mean to sit with the community and to engage with the community and to look at how these resources were developing or software tools were developing 
are actually useful in changing people's practice. And in right. our case, it's around community healthcare workers doing various types of, of health assessments. Absolutely, because trying to find well intentionally the balance between what are, is the greatest possible number of people that we can impact by giving devices Mm -hmm. and also then providing information, the balance kind of waters down the quality of the actual education that can actually happen. Yeah, Um, I think that's, that's a, that's a really, really good point and definitely coming from an education point of view. Right. And so that brings up, I guess, a, a really interesting thing that there's always a strong tension behind because digital health is such an multidisciplinary field mm-hmm. so you have people coming from various different backgrounds I'm kind of a, a bit of a hybrid I guess or an outlier because my PhD is actually in computer science but I've been working in education for you know almost almost 20 years and so I kind of can see both sides and so what may happen or what can happen is that people for example think about scale and reaching as many people as possible because you know they're driven often by metric by numbers and so there's a question, and I guess it's somewhat a, a healthcare question as well. Do you go broad or deep? <laughs> so right. broad is reaching, you know, as many people as possible. You might use, for example, just to go back to the mobile learning example, candy bar phones or SNS type phones to do that. However, as you pointed out, that means from an educational perspective, the quality of the education or training intervention you can develop on those phones is very limited. Whereas, for example, if you had a a smartphone, for example, we know what we can do with those in terms of the interactivity, the complexity of the software on those is much better from an educational point of view. And then the question arises, well, not everyone may have access to the smartphone, but those who you can reach get a better educational experience. And so then I guess it becomes a little bit of a perhaps political question <laughs> about if you're designing or you're funding community health worker training programs and you're interested in using technology to do so, what are the values, I guess, that are underpinning the decisions you're making about what that program looks like? So can you talk a little bit about what that looks like on the ground of saying, yes, smartphones can have so many more ways of interacting and providing information, but what does it practically look like on the ground? On an SMS phone, you can get basically a PDF of you know, a check mark. Even, yeah, even. So what you can do with, with SMS and what a lot of people have done is things like interactive voice recordings, okay. you know, so they'll make essentially mini podcasts, I guess, <laughs> or recorded sessions that are short and community health worker or a health worker will dial a number and press one for this, press two for this, press three for this, etc. Mm-hmm. And here content essentially um, read through them almost audiobook style and then you can do things like quizzes you know mm-hmm. so you can send them little quizzes by sms and things like that and um, there are people who developed small data collection tools that you can do with those phones okay but you, as you can see the in the majority or, or in many cases the if you think about the role if you think about the community health worker as a learner and what that looks like right for them they're quite they seem to be passive recipients of information mm-hmm. right? they're not heavily engaged in an interactive way in a participatory way in what they're doing you know we know from learning theory that the, the second one is is preferable right and putting it in, in simple terms so that's happened there's lots of projects that over the years over the last five ten years that have done that with low-end phones mm-hmm. right? now if we move on to smartphones where the changes happened over the last you know probably well in our case it was beginning almost seven, eight years ago, but then more recently with the wider availability of, particularly in East Africa, of low-end, cheaper Chinese in particular smartphones. What you can do then is you can say, actually, how do we now, this becomes a learning design problem. How do we design our course? So we move away from community health workers being passive recipients of information. And we think about how they can apply their knowledge of what they've learned in a context and perhaps with the help of a, of a smartphone. Mm. So when I go back to the example I gave earlier of the tool that helps community health workers assess stages of childhood development, that enables you to 
develop content where it's more interactive, it's visual, and critically, it involves communication between learners, right? So we've given the example of supportive supervision that can happen through either a chat functionality within the app itself or on, um, as we did through WhatsApp. So you've got private groups within there, within that, that allow discussion around particular cases, you know, sharing of, of, of information in that way. And so people get into a conversation or a dialogue, if you like, through those chat groups mediated by experts. Right. And so that can't happen on a low-end smartphone, right? Mm-hmm. Because you just don't have the bandwidth, right? Yeah. It's, you can't bring 50 people together or 30 people together. You know, it's basically one-to-one, pretty much. So that's sort of one example of the different ways of thinking about, for example, how communication between health workers is enabled through a smartphone technology in the way it isn't through an SMS-based technology. Mm. Um, another way of thinking about it, you know, for people who have children, for example, and their children are at school, <laughs> If your child came home and was listening to some interactive voice recordings around some aspect of the curriculum in English or history or geography, whatever it is, and they came back where they had, you know, a good interactive tool <laughs> and that enabled uh, video chat, for example, etc., like, and had all the capabilities that we know of, you know, that we use every day. Yes, that are responsive. Uh, on our smartphones you know, as a parent, which would you choose? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of parents can <laughs> empathize with that example right now. You'll probably go for the smartphone rather than having your child pressing one for this, mm-hmm. pressing one for this. Yeah. And so one way to think about it, well, as a parent, if that was a decision you'd make for your own child, why can't you make the same decision if you're a um, designing a mobile training program, for example, for community health workers in LMICs? Mm-hmm. What's the difference? And if you want to think about it a little bit more fundamentally from a more sort of social justice point of view, you step back again and you say, if you make the decision, so I'm not saying any of this is an intentional, obviously, because people coming from a technical background think through that lens and that's fair enough. But by choosing, for example, the SMS-based one, you've made certain decisions implicitly or otherwise about the kind of educational experience that community health worker is going to have. When I've often had this conversation over the years with people, when we do work, for example, with doctors, <laughs> we don't often have that same conversation because doctors can usually afford you know, smartphones, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But if you think about it at a, at a systemic level, you've given one type of educational um, intervention to community health workers because they're kind of if I could put it this way, lower on the scale of healthcare ranking, if you like. Mm. I wouldn't describe it that way myself, but we can think about it that way for the for the minute. And a doctor's kind of on the on the upper end of that. You've embedded an inequality in a system purely because of the decisions you've made around the technology you're using. Right. And so we've done some work just thinking through that in a more sort of theoretical or philosophical way about ways in which, from a design point of view, early on you can think about the implications of the decisions you're making, both technically and from an implementation point of view, and how that may relate to structural inequalities embedded within healthcare systems, mm-hmm. which is not often what people think a lot about when they're, mm. <laughs> when they're thinking about, you know, how do we use a mobile phone to support learning? So we try and think about it in a holistic way. Mm. Right, because so often people are thinking about how can I have the greatest impact, which equates mm-hmm. to quantity, but Usually, yeah. Usually, and not necessarily quality, but having that understanding of the experience and what it actually enables and what the implications are is super important. Exactly. And also, when you think about quality, you know, it's like the difference between, I guess, the MDGs, Millennium Development Goals, and the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, right? So in the Millennium Development Goals, if we think about schools, Right, which is not my area of expertise, but it was about numbers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, got everyone in primary school was the goal. It didn't say anything about the quality of education those children received. It was kind of tick the box to say that they were in a classroom. But if mm-hmm. I'm in a classroom of 200 kids, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're not, you're not thinking about that. And then you've got the shift to the, to the sorry, sustainable development goals, which does think about those kinds of quality issues. Kind of a similar thing we're thinking about in terms of the role of technology plays in supporting, particularly in, in, in health or mobile health. 
I mean, I know that your work and your research is really designing it to have impact in these contexts. And in, in order to do that, there needs to be a lot of collaboration between research, mm -hmm. policy, and practice. So what do you do to ensure that your research has impact? Yeah, it's a really, really important question. And I think we do an okay job. I think there's always <laughs> a lot more that can be done on, the, on the, the impact kind of side of things. And I guess there's two ways of looking at that. One is a bit more local and one is thinking more at the policy level. And mm -hmm. um, we've probably done a little bit more work or more work locally and some work at policy level. There's a lot of people across the university and elsewhere that are better policy people than, than I am. So I'll speak to that a, a little bit. On the ground, how we try to have impact is mainly through doing work in a participatory way. Right. So when we come up with a, an idea or think about a broad idea, like at the time, the role of mobile in, in healthcare um, or the role of AI currently, we don't sort of sit in the office in Oxford and think, oh, brainstorm and draw it out and develop it and then implement it six, eight, 12 months later. Mm -hmm. Right from the inception of the project, we're working with partners in the country we want to work in, by the way, this is mainly Kenya, Uganda, South Africa, for example, and thinking about actually what questions do we want to ask and co-developing even at the proposal stage with those partners. And by partners, you mean the actual practitioners? Practitioners, yeah, usually NGOs, local sort of primary district um, hospitals, healthcare centres, mm -hmm. that are very much on the ground, very much pragmatic. And we've been lucky enough over the years with the partners we, we've worked with who do an awful lot of work at the ground level. And we have a particular focus on the most marginalised, so for working in informal settlements, working in very rural areas. So there's lots of hospitals and otherwise in Kenya that are <clears throat> very well resourced to be private sector hospitals, etc. Challenges we're looking at, they don't really need to or help or they don't need to work work with us they, to address them themselves. They're well resourced to do it themselves. But when you're working with an NGO who, let's say for example, main uh, focus is on the very pragmatics of doing you know poverty reduction through improvements in in healthcare or education services. We've got a little bit of expertise on the technology and education side that we can bring to that. So our expertise between the organizations complement each other. So mm -hmm. we look at those kinds of partnerships. We're not looking to replicate the great expertise they already have in particular right. areas, right? That's not, not what it's about. So you need to get the right partnership together. And then you need to co-develop the idea from the beginning. But critically, you also need to be able to realize that okay, maybe from a funder's point of view, you're kind of leading the project, but from a pragmatic point of view, it's co-led. So one example, going back, I talked about stages of childhood, assessing stages of childhood development. That wasn't in the original proposal we, we put in. That came out of discussions on the ground with community healthcare workers around work they feel they want to do more work with, with children under five. Mm -hmm. And it developed in that direction. Right. So as a suppose in inverted commas leader of a research project you have to step back and be able to say in a participatory way how do we collaboratively work together to ensure it goes in the direction people on the ground wanted to go in mm -hmm. and so in that way the success or impact is more likely to be achieved i think perhaps be be sustainable that's a slightly different um, issue but more likely to be achieved because you've done this in a collaborative way, but you're not imposing stuff in a top-down way. You're not coming externally to, to where you are coming externally because you know, you're not from there, but you're not coming in that kind of fly-in, fly-out way. So mm -hmm. a lot of researchers on the project are either hired through and by the NGOs or if they're hired by us here in Oxford, they'll spend a substantial amount of time, nine, 12 months at a time on the ground they're not going for two weeks or four weeks or something right. leaving again much more and um, but they have to commit i guess to doing that much more fundamental work of well i'm going to live in the country for <laughs> you know a year or a two-year project or whatever it is and hopefully through that way it's not always successful but i think it has a better chance of a developing and co-developing tools that work within that context that are embedded within those networks i guess that already exist you can then really think through the ways in which technologies can address gaps and issues that the community, people on the ground, want addressed. So that's one way of doing it. And that's um, such an important part of all types of 
learning design because mm-hmm. in a lot of different contexts mm-hmm. and in the in the workplace of any any type of workplace the person designing even at the same company designing uh, new tools or learning experiences may not mm-hmm. actually understand what the specific role of the individuals, even if they're at the same company, what their mm-hmm. role really entails and often really misses the mark on teaching it in the right way and the right content so that it's actually has impact on the person's work. So in this case, it's an it's mm-hmm. a even greater difference in a context that is maybe unfamiliar to some people for sure. So what are some of the experiences you're talking about co-designing and, and really co-leading the, and iterating, really iterating through the design so that you don't design it in isolation and then implement. Correct. Correct. What is an example where you saw that this really made a difference where this type of co-design, what was the difference that it, Mm -hmm. it, it made? So I'll, yes, I think that's a really good question. So I'll take an ex- building on that, just keeping on the on the same train of thought there around that that project, and um, just to keep things coherent and not go off to <laughs> two or three other projects. I'll give an example where I think it's a success, but also a failure, <laughs> and and it's the same thing. So one of the reasons that we've been talking about about doing stuff in this participatory way is really to work with at a local level with the community, right? And particularly if you work with marginalized communities, they're marginalized for a reason, right? And in my opinion, and part of that reason is they don't fit in with existing structures or with existing systems. Mm -hmm. And so you've always got this tension between working with them or for them in some ways and working within a broader system. Mm -hmm. And often those two things can, can clash, if you like. Right because of power relations and all sorts of other things. Right? <laughs> so the question then becomes, so if, if we take this example, so the community health workers are trained, they're out in the communities assessing stages of childhood development. And that's not part of the community health worker curriculum. So they're doing something that they haven't done before. And as a result, people in the community, in some cases, well, always mothers actually, started to come up to some of the community healthcare workers and say things like, oh, I have a child that hasn't been seen and they leave them down to their, to their house. And what ended up happening, long story short, is there were lots of children with disabilities who hadn't been, hadn't been seen or didn't have access to healthcare mm-hmm. because often the mothers were very poor. So paying for transport to get to a hospital, even trying to get a hospital appointment, going through the local district health center they kind of fell through the cracks and so at a local level you can say it was a success because these health workers described as hidden children mm-hmm. because of stigma around disability and, and, mm. and other issues were able to get some help locally and get into a or how to be referred to the health system which works at a local level but actually if you step back and now you think it is systemic level or a health system level you have to ask questions of the health system to say well why did these children end up in the situation they're in which doing things then you get into things like well maybe the community health worker training curriculum should be changed to include disability for example maybe there should be different links better links between organizations who deal with disability because it's not one of the main areas of funding not to take anything away from other areas of care, but if you think about maternal and child health, you think about HIV AIDS, you think about, you know, malaria, any of these big sort of donor funded areas, disability isn't usually spoken of at Mm -hmm. that level. And so in some ways you've been successful on the ground for those particular communities, the community health workers that have been working with them. But in terms of systemic change, that's a much, much bigger <laughs> project and thing to try, try to achieve. Right. And so in some ways, it's like, well, what have you actually done or what have you actually achieved systemically? And then you have to go back and think about, well, okay, now we need to get into health system issues, <laughs> which brings you quite far away from, <laughs> we want to think about the ways in which technology can help support community health worker training, right? Yeah. It kind of plugs into a, into, into a bigger system. And so these questions, you know, it's still kind of this, ongoing question about the tension then between this very participatory working locally in terms of impact 
and actually a much stronger, broader impact in terms of change within a particular health system or within structures, which, you know, as an individual, as a research project, you have to be realistic, isn't going to happen. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it needs... It's, there's a lot. There's a lot there. And then that's, you know, we've done other work in, in that area, which is ongoing. But this is why when you think of, talk about sort of um, impact, you can think about it in, in different ways. So if you follow the kind of more systemic issues, then you get into some work on, on policy, right? And we've done a, mm-hmm. a little bit of work on, on that in terms of thinking about the ways in which... So as a result of this project, we ended up doing a lot of work on gaps in training of, of healthcare workers, but also gaps in research or where's the evidence base around particularly for work that's been done with children with disabilities in East Africa. And so we ended up doing what are called evidence maps. So this is work with a former DPhil student, Lawrence Langer, who's now in South Africa working at the University of Johannesburg and the African Centre for Evidence there. So check them out. They do a lot of this work. And one of the ways in which we've worked to with them to engage with policymakers is again thinking about doing that policy work in a participatory way, mm-hmm. bringing policymakers in earlier to say, look, this evidence base is, is emerging. How can it help you in terms of your work as a, as a policy expert? Mm-hmm. Um, but also looking at different evidence bases, not just academic, but also practitioner, which is a, a little bit controversial you know, within the evidence world <laughs> about um, how you go about doing that and why you should do it. And so... We ended up essentially doing a lot of work on mapping the evidence for policymakers and visualizing it in sort of interactive tools that allow them to engage with the evidence in a much more interactive way than let's say just having to send people policy briefs at the end of it <laughs> at the end of a process of which you would gather the evidence. So not only are you bringing them in at the beginning and working with them so mm-hmm. that it's a collaborative way mm-hmm. of understanding what should be changing in the in policy mm-hmm. or what, con- what mm-hmm. should inform policy, but also you're really putting it into a language and to a visualization that works in their context for policymakers. Yeah, because I mean, what do they need to read? You know, policy mm-hmm. briefs and documents again, where we can give them a visualization that gives them quick access, visualizes the gaps and also where the strengths are in particular areas. Right. You know, at a glance for them, and then they can drill down into the particular evidence that underpins that. Mm. essentially we've done a, a, a lot of work with the with ASOMA, African Centre for Evidence. There's definitely a lot of work in how to have research have impact and it's a very complex mm. web of different actors mm. in the in the field but what would you say would be some of your tips on how to make your your research to have impact? So you said working with the practitioners, working yes. with the policymakers, yes. co-design. I think building those, yeah I think building those networks and thinking about your work in that way. Mm-hmm. So not that the end goal, although important, is not sort of the academic papers and stuff from an impact point of view, right. although that's useful for people in my position. <laughs> and important it, for the it, academic. Exactly, side. exactly. <laughs> but thinking about it in a broader manner, mm-hmm. in terms of thinking of, about what are the ways in which the resources we develop are really useful to the community may be sustained over time and bringing people together and the networks together as early as possible mm-hmm. to enable you to do that in whatever context you're in, whether it's practitioner or policy, it may be both. And that's easier to do, you know, in a research project. It's probably harder to do for researchers like PhD or PhD students, for example, mm-hmm. who are on their own. You wouldn't have that level of expectation at that level. But when you're working, what we've been mainly focusing on projects in areas where you're bringing different expertise together i think the importance of bringing the right partners together and sustaining that network becomes really really important in terms of getting or i guess translating or knowledge exchange as we call it the research as it develops out there into the real world in as we've talked about understandable formats i could put it that way and there's other ways in which that can happen in terms of maybe taking a little bit of time out from academia to work or to intern in these other contexts, whether it's with an NGO or whether it's with government or in a particular department mm-hmm. that enables your guests to see things from their perspective, if you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, some of the funders in the UK will, will help with that, but not that, that many, but there are opportunities to 
to do that kind of thing, I think, increasingly these days. I think it's less impactful in terms of the media message or the social media message. I think that's can work in terms of short-term impact. Mm-hmm. So raising awareness, I guess, within a particular community. Right. But in terms of actually doing the longer term, building a sustainable network, it's useful, but I wouldn't prioritize it, I don't think. Okay, great. And in terms of the technology side of it, what do you mm-hmm. think are some of, so as you said, your background is in, is in computer mm-hmm. science. So if you're, mm-hmm. you have a really good understanding of the technology side. What are the challenges that you've seen that maybe those designing educational technologies in this context don't realize? Um, I think it's the way people, if you speak from a technology point of view now, how people think about the technology in these contexts, right? So, so one of our default students, Tutti, who just, just finished, actually just completed successfully, spent a lot of time thinking about the role of and machine learning, artificial intelligence in supporting or improving the feedback given to um, learners in a particular piece of software we, we have. And so that's pretty advanced, right? When you think about, you don't often yeah. think about the use of AI in LMICs, right? And so mm-hmm. well, what is that? Okay. Um, and from a technology point of view, I think people focus on what's usually called appropriate technologies. Okay. What does that so, mean? And then we, yeah, when you think about what does that mean? Well, often it means technologies that can be used locally in country. So I, I don't want to sound too critical. There's, there's two ways of looking at this. And one is more positive and one is more negative. Right? The more positive way of looking at it is it's kind of off-the-shelf technology, stuff that's available in country that enables it to be embedded within a, a healthcare system or education system. The existing network that exists. In the yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm so that it'll be sustainable, right? So it's usually simpler technology, it's usually stuff that's not state-of-the-art, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right? But that kind of works for that context. And I think there's a balance here between doing that and then the other side, which may be actually, there may be better technologies that are out there or that, and why aren't they used, right? So I think a lot of people think about that, well, the technology has to be appropriate, i.e. not state-of-the-art, not the best thing possible. Mm. <laughs> because we're working in this context. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, from a sustainability point of view, that may work really well. So if I take one example from that, the what was known as the Zimbabwe bush pump is a really good example of that, right? So it's a, it's a relatively simple pump that's easy to maintain, that you can get parts locally for that when it's put into a community or the community work with it, they, it's a, there's a ceremony, etc. And so the well usually ends up in use over time where, you know, donor wells often come in and two years later, they're not utilized or broken. They can't get local parts of them and no one has any water anymore. Mm. Right? So I'm not trying to make the claim for the latter. But what I am saying is when people think about technology and technology design, they often think about it through the appropriate lens rather than the best possible that mm-hmm. we can actually implement in this context. And going back to the smartphone versus the, basic phone is an example of that. So I think what I would think about in terms of design and implementation is, um, yes, it has to be appropriate, but only up to a point, (laughs) right? It's a delicate balance. Yeah, and think about actually what's the best thing we can do here Mm -hmm. and put that on, hat on first. So if you think about what's best, then you can say this is the end goal. So let's now start thinking about at what point will it no longer function in that context? Maybe there's no, as you said, yes. with the with the wells, there's no parts, there's no way to charge them. But think about what is the best learning experience and the tool for the best learning experience, and then start working up. That's what is that what you mean? Yes, partially. But also thinking about, well, why do you need to focus on an appropriate technology? What is it about that context in which there are other weaknesses in the system there that... Mm-hmm mean that you have to think about the appropriate technology first rather than perhaps the best one. So I liked Tushi's work because it used advanced AI techniques, but that could work on a mobile phone that enabled when people were learning. It's um, a project, project called Life that's run by Chris Patton over at the medical school. And it's a mobile training tool, a VR tool as well, but a mobile training tool that supports case-based learning by nurses. Mm-hmm. And so there's 
a number of scenarios or cases, including COVID, but also in neonatal care, for example. And what Tutti did was, in terms of the feedback that's provided to a, to a nurse, let's say um, learning about neonatal care in that, he used quite advanced AI technologies to personalize the feedback to that learner's needs, rather than, for example, just enabling a question and answer session or saying, you got the answer wrong. Mm. <laughs> the answer was B or whatever, you know, mm. that in a, more, in a more basic system may be thought about because people don't think about actually you can use these advanced technologies in the context of low and middle income countries. And that's kind of what I'm advocating for, yes. <laughs> but not in a top-down manner. Mm-hmm. Right? So people often assume that high-end technologies equal high-income countries. And if you're talking about high-end technology, you're talking about top-down implementation and MICs. Mm. Actually, what we've talked about is the ways in which actually you can do very innovative and advanced stuff in a participatory way with communities in LMICs and do that in a sustainable and impactful manner. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> it's definitely challenging, but I think it's a good starting point. You know, rather than the, let's just think about the appropriate technology as a, as, as a starting point. We've touched on the ethical issues in this yes. in this field. Yes. a few different times but just to talk about it more uh, explicitly mm-hmm. what are the ethical implications that should be considered with respect to the technology and healthcare training in low to middle income countries yes so we've done quite a bit of work in this area and taking a view or taking a stance i guess that's called prioritarianism mm-hmm. or the priority view and so in philosophy or, or medical ethics this is a stance actually aligned to pragmatically what we've been talking about, that, that says actually the most needy should be prioritized first. One way to think about this is if someone has no money, <laughs> you know, a pound or a dollar or a euro is very important to them. Mm-hmm. If someone has 99 euro and you give them another euro, it's less important to them, right? So you yes. think about the distribution of a particular resource. Absolutely. And what you say, what prioritarian view says you should actually prioritize the pain that goes to the person with with less, the impact is is a lot greater, right? And so that's different than let's say for for and a utilitarian view, which would be like you try to maximize for everyone, the maximize good across the entire population, if you like. And so we've been driven much more by a prioritarian view that says actually the marginalized, I guess, in LMICs in, in our case, are more needy, if you like, or more in need than those who are better resourced. And so you spend a lot of time then thinking about how to work with and engage with and partner with those people who may often be overlooked or not often part of the conversation. Ethically, you're making a particular decision there to work with some people rather than others. And that aligned with just the previous question we were talking about, about what's the best care or the best implementation you can do. What we try to do is put those two things together from an ethical position, we're making very particular decisions that enable that to happen. That focus or that way of thinking is sort of what's called, what Parfit calls a a priority view or prioritarianism. And that's our starting point from thinking about the role of technology in global healthcare training, the role of, of technology in global healthcare from a social justice point of view. Right. And right. To, to think about making things at least a little bit more just in our own yes. little way through that prioritarian lens and through that lens of saying, actually, what's the best from an educational learning point of view or training point of view, the best technology we can utilize. And that is really important to really think through in implementing and in designing these types of projects or any kind of project to think about what are the assumptions you're coming with what are the ethical implications that you are mm-hmm. your design is going to have because maybe it's not even intentional you don't even quite realize unless you think about it the ethical implications that you're going to have that maybe you don't want to have and how exactly. to how to be conscious about what the decisions are you are actually making and i think that that's a very good point about being conscious because you have to kind of reflect on your role as a as a researcher mm-hmm. and how these projects are impactful on the ground, who they're helping, who they're not helping. Not saying that everything's perfect, not saying that mm-hmm. everything's going to work out. It's always challenging as, as all research projects are. But you're trying to be a bit more reflective 
starting from those principles Mm -hmm. and then going from there as a starting point. And I think if we go back to the earlier part of the the discussion where we talked a little bit about the issues of of disability, we started off from a project that was just looking at mobile learning in in a healthcare training context. If we'd started from a different position or different principles, not saying one's better than the other, but we probably would not have ended up working in that space because um, of the ways in which, or the decisions we made, A, driven in a particular way by what the community wanted on the ground, deciding to work with those communities in in the first place and thinking about then the role technology plays in building that communication where people can reflect or community health workers in this case can reflect on their own learning practices. We probably would have ended up in a different space. Mm. You know, I don't know what that space would have been. <laughs> and so we try not, not always, but for most projects to think, to think in, in that way, because we think it's, I guess, the most you know, important thing, thing to do. It's more about the needs of the, of the people on the ground and how your work can support those needs. Mm-hmm you know, rather than anything you need to achieve personally, if you like, mm. <laughs> in terms of metrics and scale and, you know, something's been picked up nationally or internationally or whatever. Not saying yes. that isn't important, but I think it's, if you wanted to do that route, you probably wouldn't work or design things in the way we've talked about. But I think, you know, recognising that and reflecting on that as researchers is always a useful thing to do. Absolutely. Very, very important to to take the time to reflect and and understand where you're coming from and what you want to achieve. Before we end, is there something that you can recommend in terms of a book or article or something to listen to for people who are interested in this topic, something that inspires you and you think would be Yeah, so I think um, probably the work of Paul Farmer and Partners in Health. So he'd written a book called Pathologies of Power. So I'd recommend that one if people haven't haven't read it. That's a, a good one he talks about. So he's a medical doctor who's also an anthropologist and who's taking this prioritarian approach or what he calls a preferential option for the poor mm-hmm. in the design and implementation of healthcare programs, particularly in, in Haiti and um, Rwanda and other, other countries. So it's a right, it's a very interesting read. It's probably a good starting point. So some of that we've focused on taking, thinking through some of those principles and how they apply in technology or technology and healthcare context. So that's one I'd, I'd recommend, yeah, Pathology of Power by Paul Farmer. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Kinga. Thank you. It was such a pleasure as always to talk to you and to learn from you. Thanks again for the invite. (laughs)